Today we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2, and we're going to seek to glean truth and application from the Scriptures. First and foremost, as we open our Bibles, my preparation this morning is indebted to the grace of God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. For it is through the Spirit that we are given the mind of Christ. It is through the Spirit that the inspired words of the gospel jump off the page and land perfectly into each of our minds, into each of our hearts, and in each, into each of our lives, no matter our age, our background, or our circumstances. Additionally, my preparation for this sermon is indebted to the study and ministry of John Piper. His preaching on this passage was a great aid to my prayer and meditation on this passage. Interestingly enough, this passage was the text for John's inaugural sermon at Bethlehem Baptist Church in the summer of 1980. And it's amazing to to open the Word and to see someone have preached through the Word 41 years ago and it apply evermore and ever perfectly to the life and to the world and to the sin that I live in today. And that we live in today. If you're able, would you stand as we open God's word to 1 Corinthians 2. In honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 1 through verse 13. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among you, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, Or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Amen. You may be seated. We live in the information age. In Sunday school, a few weeks ago, I shared with you an article that I read that compared the totality of man's knowledge. 
It compared the totality of man's knowledge from the beginning of time to the start of the 20th century. And it said that if you took all of man's knowledge from the beginning of time to the start of the 20th, 20th century, and you, by comparison, you put it as a stack of papers, that that stack of papers would be one inch tall. Now, if you take all of the knowledge acquired by man from the beginning of the 20th century to current time, so just the last 120 years, and you use that same analogy, that same word picture of a stack of papers, the amount of knowledge acquired by man in the last 120 years would be equivalent to a stack of papers one mile high. So you take the first thousands of years as one inch, and the last 120 years is one mile high. The advancements in scientific and the medical disciplines have created a world today that was unimaginable 100 years ago. Just over 100 years ago, people traveled almost exclusively by horses and trains. People communicated via telegraph and post. The average lifespan in the United States was a full 20 years Shorter than the current average life expectancy in the United States. Not only has the totality of information increased dramatically, but access to that information has also increased unimaginably. With the advent of the internet and smartphones, there is now almost immediate access to the vast amount of knowledge amassed by humans simply by pulling a handheld device out of your pocket and saying, Hey Google, I wanted to find out the reasons that are attributed to the drastic increase in knowledge over the past hundred years. So what did I do? I pulled out my phone and I Googled it, right? It seems that there are a couple reasons credited for such an exponential increase in knowledge over the last 100 years. First, is the nature of knowledge, in that each discovery is able to stand on the shoulders of the discovery that came before it. Additionally, with knowledge, it need not be passed by person in the presence of one another. It is not a word-of-mouth requirement that needs to pass for knowledge. There can be discoverers that jump decades ahead of their peers And as long as they write down their knowledge, as long as they write down their discoveries, generation later, someone can come along and start to build upon that knowledge. Second is population growth. There are four times as many people on the earth today as there were in 1920. In fact, by most calculations, there are more people living today than have ever died. That is a mind-blowing statistic. That there are more people alive today than have ever died in the history of the world. Side note, different sermon. That is an amazing fact when it comes to the thought of evangelism. And missions, is it not? And third, geopolitical superpower stability of the last century. 
Namely, there have not been instances like what was experienced by the Mayans or the Greeks or the Romans, where an advanced society was largely wiped out, taking large swaths of know-how and ingenuity down with them. One question that does come to mind is, has the dramatic increase in knowledge of the world in the past 100 years resulted in a similar increase in wisdom? While knowledge is considered the retention of facts of the world around us, wisdom is characterized by the ability to apply knowledge within a situation in a manner that leads to a preferred outcome. One example of the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that knowledge is to know that a desert trail is 12 miles long. Wisdom is to pack enough water to be able to make that trek. Generally speaking, it is agreed that wisdom has not increased over time. One reason that people believe this is the case is that wisdom not only requires knowledge, but it requires time or experience. And no one is born with time or experience under their belt. In fact, it is acquired slowly over time. While knowledge can be sucked up into the brain like a vacuum cleaner, Wisdom requires cultivation. It requires practice. Wisdom can be thought more like a toddler learning to walk. It takes practice. It takes failing. It takes figuring it out. You kind of need to develop wisdom over time and with a lot of practice. Therefore, unlike knowledge, it is much harder to stand on the wisdom of the previous generation. In fact, by man's definition of wisdom, it's actually increasingly difficult to be wise as from one generation to the next, more knowledge is acquired. We learn more and more things about the world before us. We learn more and more things about the world around us. And therefore, situations become more and more complex. Our ability to apply the increased knowledge to the situation that, in a manner that leads to the preferred outcome becomes more and more difficult over time. In short, over the last hundred years... Mankind has categorically increased our understanding of the human mind, of human behavior, of the chemical and electrical makeup of the human brain, and the psychological importance of being affirmed. But none of that has led to one iota of improvement for the young husband When he decides to say to his young bride, that's not how my mom does it. You can have all of that knowledge and none of that wisdom, right? Discerning the situation is well beyond his years. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. 
Corinth at this time is a chief city in Greece, both commercially and politically. Geographically, Corinth was located near two harbors, and the city acted as an intersection for trade between the far reaches of the known world, including Spain, Italy, Asia Minor, and Egypt. For that reason, it is very likely that social, political, and financial might were regularly on display within Corinth, making the pursuit of earthly power and influence a great temptation for the people within the Corinthian church. Culturally, being Greek meant that there was a social admiration for philosophy, which literally translates to the love of wisdom. For that reason, it's very likely that the pursuit of this impressive way of thinking, acting, and talking was also a temptation to the people of the Corinthian church. It would seem that the pursuit of power and wisdom had leaked into the church, as we see Paul addressing both of them directly in the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4.8, Paul mocks the reader's pursuit of power and wealth, saying, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. In chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, Paul mocks the reader's pursuit of of the wisdom of men. He writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's aim in the first chap- chapters of this letter is to compare and contrast the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. He wants the reader to understand that they could not be more different from one another. They are different in heart. They are different in source. They are different in usefulness and lead to entirely different eternal outcomes. Paul is highlighting very clearly for the reader that the wisdom which pursues worldly power and worldly acclaim does not lead to fellowship with God. In fact, the wisdom of God And the wisdom of man are so different from one another that each of them accuses the other of foolishness. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul recounts his visit to Corinth. And he describes for them a play-by-play of the evangelism technique that he used during his visit. Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Paul knows that to attempt to use the tools and techniques of man's wisdom by attempting to lay out a logical argument, to attempt to persuade through rational and reasonable explanation will produce no evangelistic fruit. Paul continues in verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This raises two questions. First, what specifically is wrong with the wisdom of men? And why does Paul essentially say that the wisdom of men cannot lead to salvation? And second, what does Paul mean when he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. And my speech and my message was the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. For us to understand the answer to those two questions is to understand the purpose with which Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. The answer to the first question, what is wrong with the wisdom of men? And why doesn't the wisdom of man lead to salvation? I believe the answer is found in chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 of 1 Corinthians. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We see a similar passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 6. He writes, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is highlighting the root of Of man's wisdom. Boasting. Boasting. At the core of man's pursuit of wisdom is pride. Self-exaltation. And self-satisfaction. And Paul knows that the only pathway to the cross. Is through what? Total humiliation. Complete knowledge of weakness. The only means by which we approach the cross is to reject our pride, our boasting, and our pursuit of glory. As as we are only then able to come into a relationship with the one who is all glory, deserves all credit, and possesses all Wisdom. Paul knows that the foundation of man's wisdom is his pride, and that pride has no pathway to the cross. 
Therefore, for Paul to attempt a conversation about the cross using the rules of engagement of man's wisdom is what? Fruitless. It serves no purpose. You can't get there from here. I'm reminded of a quote by Mark Twain when he was asked why he would not debate certain people. His reply, I do not argue with fools, for they will drag me down to their level and beat me with experience. There is no pathway to Christ that can be laid out for a person that is seeking logical arguments which seek to make much of them. Or those that wish to demonstrate their aptitude. Or those governed by pride. Paul didn't even try. Rather, Paul preached and lived Christ crucified. The second question. What does Paul mean when he says... I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The answer to this question has massive, massive evangelistic ramifications. Paul is telling the Corinthians, my goal was to bring you to a saving understanding of Christ. These are the things that I specifically did not do. And these are the things that I specifically did do. As we saw in the previous question, engaging with man according to the rules of man's wisdom is an attempt to appease their pride. And since pride has no place in the presence of God, it is fruitless to attempt to bring someone to Christ through the doorway of pride. So rather, Paul uses Christ crucified and demonstrating the spirit and power. Our ability to understand the heart and the actions of these phrases is to give us a jump start toward an understanding of evangelism from the person called by God specifically to take the gospel to us, the Gentiles. First, I believe it is literally to recount the prophecy, birth, life, ministry, death, Burial, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. With specific emphasis done on the work. Specific emphasis of the work done on the cross. The ministry of Christ breaks all of the molds of human wisdom. The ministry of Christ makes no sense to the human mind. A powerless, poor Jew, enslaved by the Roman Empire, born in a city of zero consequence, living a life without earthly pursuit. He did not amass wealth. He did not seek fame. He had the power to heal. 
He had the power to perform miracles. He did not use this power to generate societal influence with the movers and the shakers. Rather, he associated with whom? The outcasts, the poor, the ill, the unclean. He was tried as a criminal and executed in the most shameful manner. Yet, in the moment that he appears to be the most weak, he is demonstrating unimaginable power. Power over sin and power over death. A death he did not deserve was actually a payment. A payment of a debt he did not owe. A payment of the debts of those that killed him. A payment that demonstrates his love for us. And allows for us, his enemy, his murderer, to love him. To the wisdom of man, this is folly. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I remember, I remember one day, uh, a number of years ago at work, I had the opportunity to talk to a co-worker about Christ and about my understanding of salvation and about my undeserved salvation. He had had some things happen in his life and he was kind of wrestling with what is it all for and why is this happening and, and to what end is all of this. And, and so I took that opportunity and I described for him the, the, the prophecy, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the ascension, the return of Christ. After recounting the person and ministry of Christ, he said to me, that story makes no sense. How is it good for society to kill a good person to pay the penalty for bad people? Wouldn't it make more sense to sacrifice criminals' lives to pay the debts of the good people? The wisdom of God is folly to, the man, to man pursuing his own wisdom. Paul's second evangelism approach is his own testimony of being born in the elite, raising to the ranks of influence, power, and prestige to ultimately lay it down in the pursuit of a life on the run, a life without possession, a life without a roof over his head. Paul demonstrates for the church in part in his own life and in fullness in the life of Christ of laying down the pursuit of earthly wisdom and power in order to worship and serve the Creator. This change in Paul, these life decisions, are demonstration of the power of the Spirit that is within him. Paul is telling and showing the Corinthians through his life, and through the life of Christ, that access to God's wisdom is through humility, frailty, and brokenness. There are a few potential manipulations of these verses, which stem from an improper belief that Paul is condemning all wisdom within this passage. 
Across history, there have been some that have been tempted to conclude that followers of Christ are in some sense to avoid knowledge or or some sense to avoid learning. It is important to highlight that the alternative to the proud use of the mind is not no use of the mind. That is not the opposite of the proud use of the mind. The alternative to the proud use of the mind is what? The humble use of the mind. In fact, Christians are encouraged, even commanded, to pursue wisdom via the revealed Word of God, equipped through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Another improper conclusion born from these verses is to segregate out institutions of higher learning as the source of the wisdom of man. There have been some that have been tempted to look at the agendas of higher education and to point to those curriculums as being the source of man's wisdom. The truth is, is that the wisdom of man is not only found within universities and schools. It's born in us. It's factory installed. It's there on day one. The wisdom of man is found in the rich and the poor, the learned and the uneducated, the tall and the short, the old and the young. The wisdom of man is anything that attempts to justify us. Any wisdom that comes from a heart of placing oneself on the throne. We need not attend an institution of higher learning in order to acquire the desire to place ourselves on the throne. Paul goes on to further describe who cannot receive the wisdom of God. He talks about two groups, those that have received it and those that cannot receive it or have not yet received it. So Paul goes on to show us who cannot receive the wisdom of God. And we see this in verse 6. As Paul contrasts the wisdom of God, which is imparted on the mature in Christ with the wisdom of this age, demonstrated by the rulers of this age, which are doomed to pass away. It is important then that we discern who Paul is referring to with regard to the rulers of the age. As they seem to be the ones most associated with the wisdom of man. Paul helps us in verse 8 by giving a defining characteristic of the rulers of this age. Namely, that they do not recognize the glory of God. And specifically, do not recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For if they had, they would not have crucified him. Jesus uses similar language with the Jewish leaders in John 5. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you, he says to them. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes 
from the one and only God. Jesus is again pointing here to pride, to boasting, to making much of self or making much of man. Jesus tells us, Jesus tells them because of their pursuit of receiving and giving acclaim to one another, that they are blinded to the one which deserves all acclaim and all glory. Another demonstration of the wisdom of man is found in Mark 11 during Jesus' interaction with the chief priests, the elders and the scribes while in the temple. This group was seeking the acclaim of man. They're seeking to impress the crowd by stumping Jesus. And so they asked Jesus a question and they asked him in public, Jesus By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave this authority to you to do them? This is intended to be a trap question. They're attempting to stump Jesus. What is his response? His response is to pose a question to them. In verse 30, Jesus asks, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? What happens next is, I believe, a perfect example of the wisdom of man in pursuit of acclaim, in pursuit of boasting, in pursuit of putting oneself on the throne. Mark recounts what's going on in their huddle. So they huddle together. We get to hear. We get to hear what's going on in their huddle. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then we are afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So what did they do? They punted. They turned to Jesus and they said, we don't know. We're not sure. The entire narrative of what is going through their minds is about what? What other people will think or say to their answer. They are singularly focused on how they will be regarded by their answer. And since they were placed in a no-win situation... They refuse to answer. Interestingly, what is the one thing that they do not seem concerned about? The truth. Amen. They're, they're not concerned about what is the actual answer. They, they couldn't care. They don't care. It's immaterial to the conversation. They don't give a rip about the truth. They only care about how they will be regarded during and after the debate. The wisdom of man is governed by pride on one side and fear on the other. Truth is not a concern. Being acclaimed is the single concern. Does this sound at all 
like the current state of discourse in our nation today? Is there, is there, is anybody else see a connection? A couple people have naps. Okay, I won't speak too loud. Our ears and eyes are filled with a deluge of content in which the author or speaker is more concerned about being acclaimed than they are the truth. Do you know what is amazing? These sentences were written in 1980. 41 years ago, this sermon... John Piper opened to 1 Corinthians 2 and said that society was filled with men and women who were more concerned about their pride and their fear than they were the truth. What does Solomon say? Nothing is new under the sun. The concerns of 1980, moth and rust have destroyed. What will the concerns of 2021 be in 2065. Like all wisdom of man, moth and rust will destroy. It is important though, as believers in Christ, as believers in the resurrected God, that we do not engage. We do not get wound up by. We do not pursue. We do not be discouraged by speakers and information and content that seeks not truth that only seeks to acclaim the speaker that only seeks to be governed by pride and fear of the speaker so if we know who is ineligible to receive the wisdom of god namely those that are governed by their own pride Who then can receive the wisdom of God? Paul gives us multiple references. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Paul is speaking to believers. He says, brothers. This, This is addressed to us. To the church, to the body, to believers in Christ crucified, in Christ resurrected. In Paul's own words, these are infants in Christ, but they have not put to death the deeds of the flesh. Specifically, he calls out jealousy and he calls out strife among the people of Corinth. An interesting parallel to this passage is to turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. In chapter 5, he calls the church to walk in the Spirit. And specifically, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul lists the desires of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, jealousy, strife. These two aspects that Paul is mentioning in 1 Corinthians, jealousy and strife, he mentions them again in Galatians 5. What does Paul use to contrast the desires of the flesh in Galatians 5? The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In verse 25 of Galatians 5, Paul says, And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Who then receives the wisdom of God? Those that have crucified the flesh and demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit. This conclusion has profound implications. This means that there is not an intellectual prerequisite to attain the wisdom of God. And we knew that to be true already simply by the people that Jesus selected as his apostles. These were not men of intellectual pursuits. These were men in pursuit of fish. It is profound to say that it is not education which is required to attain the wisdom of God. It is sanctification that is required to attain the wisdom of God. It is profound to say that the holiness of your life is directly tied to your access to the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is not given to those that are governed by jealousy, pride, or other desires of the flesh. God's wisdom is given to the mature. God's wisdom is not given to the elite. Anyone living according to the promises of God has direct access to the infinite wisdom of God. Now we know this to be true and we preach this from this pulpit. We know this to be true of all aspects of our Christian walk. But it bears repeating this morning. The elders and teachers of this church have no greater access to the wisdom of God than anyone else that puts to death their fleshly desires, puts on the armor of God, and walks with the Spirit, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. The wisdom of man is attained by the elite. The wisdom of God is given freely to the meek, to the humble, to the broken, and to those that do battle with their sin And by no power or insight of their own, but rather by faith in the power of the resurrected Christ. And finally, how? How? If we know who is incapable of getting the wisdom of God, and we know who is the recipient of the wisdom of God, how do they receive? How do we receive the wisdom of God? It is attained by the gift of the Spirit of God. Paul reminds us that our own spirit within us knows both the words of our mouth, but also the thoughts 
of our mind. There is no greater intimacy that could be had with someone than to know their spirit. Because you would know not only their words and their deeds, but their thoughts and their heart. In the same way, the Spirit of God knows God perfectly. Knowing even the thoughts of God. It is to say that the Spirit is freely given to us in our maturity to aid us in worshiping God. To aid us in discerning the Word of God. To aid us in sharpening our conscience and our convictions. To aid us in sharing with others our intimate relationship with God. To aid us in discerning God's truths and direction in and through the trials of life. As we close, let's turn to James 3. Verse thir- starting in verse 13. James writes, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Amen. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a people that pursue spiritual maturity. May we be a people not characterized by the desires of the flesh. May we not be characterized as a people of jealousy and strife. May we be a congregation where the fruits of the Spirit are evident, both individually and corporately. Lord, may the evidence of your Spirit, your thoughts, godly wisdom, be prevalent amongst us. Lord, with your spirit and wisdom, may you guide us, influence us, and steer us in a manner that our interactions with the world and with one another do not demonstrate the characteristics of man's wisdom with a heart of boasting. Rather, with a heart of humility, with a heart of thankfulness and awestruck wonder at Jesus Christ crucified. Lord, we know that the world sees the ministry of Christ as foolishness. There is no exaltation of myself in the ministry of Christ. Lord, it is only by your will and your spirit that we are called out of death and into life. 
that our hearts are transformed from those of stone into hearts of flesh. Lord, may we be ministers of your grace and of your love for us. Lord, we are wholly incapable of our own ability to convey the perfection of Christ. But you have chosen to take that which is weak and make it strong. Lord, may you take each of us, weak as we are, and to your glory, to your credit, to your acclaim, make us strong. Amen and amen.